And throughout the storm, we could hear the entire city just literally coming apart around us. It was frightening. Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is George Karunas. He's a Canadian explorer and storm chaser. For the past 20 years, he's been chasing storms in all seven continents. At the same time, it was part of this experience of, of the natural world at its extreme, and, and I sort of fell in love with that. George documents these incredible displays of Mother Nature on a TV show called Angry Planet. What's so appealing about devastating tornadoes, hurricanes, and volcanoes? That's coming up on today's episode. You're listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. This is Mountain Meister. Designed, developed, and tested at the base of the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, our sponsor, Steo, was founded to inspire connection with the outdoors through modern, technical, and versatile outdoors apparel. From storm-ready backcountry ski wear to everyday flannels and denim, like I'm wearing right now, Steo provides function and fashion in the mountains that you can't beat. Head over to Steo, S-T-I-O dot com. Use the code MEISTER at checkout for an exclusive 20% off of your purchase. That's MEISTER at Steo.com. This deal is only available through this podcast. And thanks. Welcome to the show, George. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. George, I've never been inside of a tornado, but you have. <laughs> Most people don't want to be there, let me tell you. What's it like? Well, <clears throat> the whole sort of idea of chasing tornadoes doesn't really necessarily involve trying to get into them. Um, I have accidentally once been inside a tornado, but what I really try to do is get as close as I safely can and document them. Now, having said that, yes, uh, um, I have been inside one uh, just outside of Oklahoma City quite a few years ago. It was at night, and I normally try not to chase tornadoes at night because it's just very difficult. You can't see what's going on. You're in this inky blackness. And then suddenly, debris just starts flying past. And I'm talking not sheets of paper, two by fours, garbage cans, pieces of roofs flying, like driving through a swarm of bees as electrical transformers are exploding with these massive blue green power flashes right beside my car and I had to turn and drive with the wind as fast as I could to try and reduce the force of the impact of these pieces of debris hitting my car and then hide behind a shopping mall to get out of all that flying maelstrom as this dark growling force goes past and uh, let me tell you took about 10 minutes for my leg to stop shaking. Are you on the road at this point? Uh, I, I was on a road. I was in El Reno. Not El Reno. I was in the town of Yukon, Oklahoma. All these little towns blend in together um, over the years. Um, and uh, I, was, I was heading north towards the interstate highway, and then I ended up having to turn into this uh, shopping mall this, to, to she seek shelter. And nobody else was on the road? It's funny because there were there were a bunch of people on the road, and then as we got closer, there were a few storm chasers, and then there was nobody, absolutely nobody, and uh, that should have been my first clue. Do you find yourself running into a lot of the same storm chasers? 
Oh, absolutely. We actually have a term for it, oh. uh, chaser convergence. Um, we'll sometimes meet uh, friends of mine from Europe, Australia, all over the U.S. and Canada, and we'll, by total happenstance, meet in a uh, parking lot of a gas station in Ugalala, Nebraska, just because we're all thinking the same thing. We're all trying to do our own weather forecast mm-hmm. and be in the place where we think a tornado is going to be later in that day. It might be blue sky, but here we are, sometimes dozens of storm chasers all converging on these same little towns. So it's, uh, it's certainly an odd phenomenon, and that'll happen all season long. So in this case, you were the last man standing. Yeah, exactly. The last man standing and then eventually running. Now, is this convergence, is there any competitive nature to this or do you work together? Well, you know, whenever you have a couple of guys doing anything, there's going to be competition involved. They say the first car race was five minutes after the second car was built. (laughs) Uh, So... Yeah, I mean, we, we're all we're all very we know each other. It's a small community; everyone knows everyone. But there is a certain amount of competitiveness to see who can get the most photogenic angle, see who can get the best shot, and it's difficult. These tornadoes are hard to predict. You don't know exactly where one is going to form, and it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack while the haystack is moving at sixty miles an hour and not paying attention to any of the traffic laws, of course. So it's uh, it's a challenge, and when you're successful, it's very rewarding. But uh, there's always going to be that that little element of competition that we we try not to let it be too invasive. But there's always going to be a little bit there. So what's your success rate, or, or maybe not yours, but a but a storm chaser's success rate? We we tend to only see the highlights, right? Yeah, well, it really depends on what you define as success. As a, and I'm using air quotes here, as a storm chaser, if I find a storm, then hey, that's a success. Um, of course, the icing on the cake is going to be the tornado. And about one in 10 storm chases mm-hmm. end up with a tornado. So that's a pretty good uh, indicator of how the success rate is. Uh, we had this incredible stretch this year back in May of 2016 where uh, I was working with the weather network at the time and we encountered tornadoes every day for five consecutive days including one day where there were nine or ten out of one particular storm so you just never know most of the time it's not like the movie Twister at all (laughs) but sometimes you have those days when did people start doing this the first storm chasers uh, actually started decades and decades ago. Uh, Roger Jensen, Dave Hoadley, Jim Leonard, these are guys that all were the pioneers of storm chasing. And what they would do is try and learn how to predict the weather. They would go to the National Weather Service field office and make friends with the meteorologists there and get access to weather maps. And they would call in from pay phones. This is in the 1970s way before the internet and of course way before mobile data anything like that so these guys and i know these guys some of them are still around uh, it blows my mind how they would be successful and they were they got really good at learning how to read the sky wow wow so are are storm chasers meteorologists or just adventure seekers Uh, most of us are not meteorologists but we all understand meteorology there are lots of, of Mets who are storm chasers, but for example, 
for me to forecast where I think a tornado is going to be in Kansas, let's say, I don't need to study every parameter of the atmosphere. I just need to understand the ones that are relevant to tornado production. I don't need to try and figure out how much snow that uh, Indianapolis is going to get next week or whatever. Like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm only looking for the most extreme parts, and that really narrows the scope of the meteorology that I have to be comfortable and familiar with in order to do what I do. Mm -hmm. The more you know, the better, of course. And, and with experience. Of course. Experience is paramount. Mm -hmm. Once you're in the environment of one of these supercell thunderstorms, and that's the type of storm that produces these tornadoes, these we call them supercells. It's a great name. And these, these storms can be twice the height of Mount Everest. Some of them are 50, 60,000 feet high. And they slowly rotate. And all of that energy is concentrated down on a, a farmer's field. And, and learning how to navigate around these storms, knowing where the dangerous part is, being able to read the sky is as important as knowing how to forecast where the storms are going to be. So it really does break down into a couple of different uh, uh, disciplines. It's incredible. Do, do you remember your your first storm? I'm wondering, like, at maybe a time when you were a kid when you, you found yourself kind of going toward that storm and everybody else was running away. <laughs> well, as you might imagine, I was a bit of a weird kid. <laughs> My uh, heroes were Jacques Cousteau and Indiana Jones. But um, I do remember a few instances where I was like riding my bike and a hail started to come down. And I thought, this is awesome. So I just stayed outside instead of going indoors. It, was, uh, it, was, it hurt, but at the same time, it was part of this experience of, of the natural world at its extreme. And, and I sort of fell in love with that. And I remember there was a flood, this, this creek nearby where we would sometimes go and swim in the summertime. And this one particular time, it was after a huge rainstorm and the creek was all flooded and the water was rushing like crazy and it was super dangerous. But we went in it anyway against uh, what would have been better judgment at the time. So I, I sort of got interested in science and nature when I was a kid and then really latched onto it once I was in my mid to late 20s and started to get into photography and, and understanding that I could travel on my own and I could go and, and pursue these things, not just in Canada or the United States, but all over the world. There's a great picture on your website, uh, one of many, of uh, your, your adventure vehicle. Is it still the Honda CRV? Yes, I still have that car, and there's a great story behind it. It's the first car I ever bought, the only car I've ever owned. It's got close to 500,000 kilometers on it. The hood looks like a jealous ex-girlfriend took a ball-peen hammer to it because it's so full of hail dents. It's been in about a dozen hurricanes, including Sandy and Katrina, and it's the only car I've ever owned. And I beat it like it owes me money, like a rented mule. And it keeps coming back for more. I cannot destroy it. Uh, during Hurricane Ike, the floodwater was so high. Uh, we were in Galveston, Texas. We got right in the eye of the storm. And the floodwater was so high that the, uh, the, the seawater got into the air intake and completely flooded the engine and killed it. And so we had to 
find a spark plug wrench and a friend towed me over to Houston and we ended up having to rip a piece of hose from the windshield washer fluid line and I used that to siphon the seawater out of the engine cylinders and sprayed WD-40 in there and get the thing started and, it, and drove it back to Canada after that. It was it, worked. It was crazy. I, I cannot kill this car. It's the most indestructible vehicle on earth, I think. Do you, so do you think uh, maybe this car is the equivalent of, of you? In machine well, form. I, <laughs> I, I like to think so. Um, I, I haven't given the car a name. You know how some people give yeah, their cars right. these these nicknames and things like that. I never have, but it's my trusty steed. Uh, it has gotten me through a lot. I've literally drove one time from home here in Toronto all the way to the Arctic Ocean and was driving on the ice roads and then up and was driving on the frozen Arctic Ocean with the northern lights overhead. Uh, it's just literally been through so, so much. I hope it never dies. I, I'd love to get half a million kilometers out of it, maybe more. I hope I can. Uh, uh, the picture I was talking about before, it, it says this giant wave at Peggy's Cove in Nova <laughs> Scotia. Uh, so, yes, you remember this based on your laugh. It, it's this wave that looks from the picture like it's probably uh, five times as tall as you and your car. What What happened when that wave hit you? Well, more than five times. Okay. <laughs> uh, th this was during a hurricane that was coming up the uh, Atlantic coast and was going to impact Nova Scotia. And so myself and a couple of colleagues, we, we went to Peggy's Cove where there's this beautiful iconic lighthouse and these huge rocks. And my friend, who uh, Mike Tice, who's a National Geographic photographer, was with me and he wanted to get some pictures of these huge waves that were crashing on these rocks. But you need something in the frame to add scale <laughs> right. and perspective or else the, the, the photo has no meaning. So he, he says, George, why don't you take your car and just drive into the parking lot a little closer to the rocks so that I can get you in the frame? I'm like, OK, I can do that. So I get into position and I'm standing there at the back of my car and I'm not even kidding. The, a wave that was twice the size of anything that we had seen all day, this rogue wave – hits the rocks, explodes up, I'm guessing 100 to 150 feet in the air. Oh, and when you're standing in a parking lot with boulders around you that you knew had been thrown there by the waves earlier in the day, and you have to look up straight up in the air to watch this wave about to crash and land on top of you, your heart ends up in your mouth. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to get flattened, that every window in my car was going to get smashed out. The thing crash landed on top of me like a building landing on on me and luckily I was okay the car was okay but let's just say I moved the vehicle pretty quickly yeah this gets yeah. A, so the unpredictability of all of this I find very interesting and uh, I have a roommate uh, Max and I ask him if he has any questions and uh, his question gets at this uh, how do you how do you decide to get closer and closer and closer like when when the photographer there says go go in front of uh, of the waves. How do you decide to do that? Well, I've got a, a mathematical formula, actually. And danger equals exposure times time. So the way that that works out is the amount of danger that I'm in depends on how close I am and for how long. So getting up close to where those waves are crashing, I would do it only for a few moments, that type of thing. So the longer I spend in what I consider the extreme danger zone, whether it's in the eye wall of a hurricane or very close to a tornado or inside a volcano, I do that as well. 
Um, I try to limit the amount of time that I spend inside that extreme danger zone. And over the years, I've gotten pretty good at risk assessment and risk management. I've, I've been to 60 plus countries, all seven continents. I've seen every type of weather and natural disaster and phenomenon that you can possibly imagine. And I've never had a single broken bone, never had a single overnight stay in hospital. Wow. So safety always comes first. We joke around uh, safety first or at least in the top three. And uh, that way we try to, you know, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to minimize the amount of danger. Mm -hmm. It's I try to do dangerous things in the safest manner possible. We hear something similar from uh, the mountaineers that come on this show. They say, that uh, when they're in that risky environment, the faster you can get through that environment, the better. Oh, absolutely. If you're a mountaineer and you're on Everest and you're over 8,000 meters, you're in the death zone, right? They call it the death zone for a reason. So I have my own version of the death zone, but it's not having to do with altitude. It has to do with proximity, how close I am to the tornado, how close am I to the lava, how close am I to the waves, those type of things. But it's the exact same concept. More from my interview with storm chaser George Karunas coming up in a bit, including... So it's us, humans, that decide whether something is a disaster or not. Mountain Meister is supported by Bulls Bikes. In a previous episode, you heard me talk to Barney Franco from Bulls about their direct-to-consumer business model. By skipping the retailer, Bulls can pass on savings to you, the buyer, and offer a high-quality bike at a lower price. But some people are uncomfortable buying a bicycle online, and their concerns are valid. You can't test ride it, you miss an in-store experience, and a lot of people like to buy it already assembled. Bulls does everything they can to fill that void, and they want to communicate that to their potential customers. They sent me the Nighthawk 2, and I recorded my unboxing of the bike with roommate Max. How heavy is it, Max? Silly, silly light. Okay, nice. Yeah, it's supposed to be 17.41 pounds. After everything is put together. The bike is delivered in a big box from FedEx, and when you unbox, there are detailed instructions on how to put everything together. Okay, so basically the frame and the back, the back wheel is already on. The frame is tied together to the front wheel. We're just pulling the front wheel off. Everything is 99% assembled in the box. All you really need to do is put on the handlebars, the front wheel, and the seat post. My bike is a carbon frame, but the seat post and the handlebars are aluminum. If you are doing anything with carbon in that area, you should use a torque wrench. Okay, we started at 551, it's 553. There are also detailed video instructions online if you need any extra help. It was honestly really easy, and I've been riding the bike now for three months and no problems. Just like that, it's done. Yeah. Okay, wait, how much time? It took us less than, when did I start recording? 50, 51. 51. It took us 13 minutes to put the bike together. It is assembled, ready to ride. For 5% off of your purchase, head over to bullsbikesusa.com. Use the code BULLSEYE5, B-U-L-L-S-E-Y-E, -E, the number five. Now back to our interview with George Karunas, the Storm Chaser. What's the what's the worst situation that you found yourself in? Worst? Wow. The gnar there are so gnarliest, many from. gnarliest, the, most, the most extreme, yeah. I'll give you two examples. Okay. Um, a few years ago, I was in Nebraska, and I was driving the lead vehicle for a storm chase tour company, and I'd, been, I'd done that for 12 years. 
so people can come from around the world and, and join us on tornado chases, which is pretty cool. I, yeah, I, I found that out as I was looking in, uh, doing some research about this. I never knew that existed. It, it's a thing, and we were in Nebraska, and a tornado touched down right beside us. And it took one of those farmer's field irrigation circle devices, you know, those massive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pieces of farm equipment, and pushed it over, and the thing comes smashing into mm-hmm. my windshield. And I got the whole thing on video. You could see it. It takes a lot of wind to push over an irrigation system. And it literally could not have hit me any more directly, right into the windshield as the camera was rolling. And... Uh, let me tell you that that gets your attention. Where where can I see this video? It's on YouTube. It's on if YouTube. You, if you go onto YouTube and just do a search for um, "storm chasers hit by farm equipment," okay, and and you'll find it. It's funny because it was it happened on Mother's Day, and earlier that day I had been talking to my mom, and for whatever reason she felt extra worried about me, which is odd because she very rarely says anything Wow. because uh, she's so desensitized to my crazy adventures. But that day, she did say something. And then, of course, we end up getting farm equipment in our face. And that night, the video ended up on CNN. So, <laughs> yes, I've given my mom a lot of gray hairs over the years. I'll get that video on our website so our listeners can hear can uh, see Excellent. that. But the other gnarly um, adventure or, or, or experience was, was more prolonged. It was the 12 hours leading up to the landfall of Hurricane Katrina. The, the warnings coming out of the National Weather Service were – it was biblical. They were talking about the winds being so strong that uh, if you were outside, you it would be certain death and that large buildings would sway to the point of collapse and large appliances and small vehicles would become deadly airborne missiles. This is These are quotes from the National Weather Service. And here I am in Gulfport, Mississippi – where I know the strong side of the storm is going to hit. The weak side hit New Orleans. And I didn't know what was going to happen over the next 12 to 24 hours, whether I was documenting the last hours of my life. And throughout the storm, we could hear the entire city just literally coming apart around us. It was frightening. They say that you really know that you love your job, uh, not only when you get excitement about it, but when you feel like you're contributing and um, helping other people. So I, I must uh, imagine that you love delivering stories and uncovering this stuff. Absolutely. And so much so to the point you hit, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, years ago, I made an, a very conscious decision that the purpose of my life was to travel the world, document the most extreme places, and then share what I've seen with as many people as possible. And for me, the sharing part is just as important as being there to document these forces of nature, these natural phenomena. And by people seeing the videos in nature documentaries and by giving talks to schools and things like that, people learn how to stay safe. They learn how bad bad really can be. Mm. And so I sort of feel an obligation because of my my privilege, literally, to go to these places. I feel it's a privilege. Um, I feel I have an obligation to show the world what I have seen. It's depressing that uh, it's so entertaining for us to watch this devastation. Well, let me, let me head you off at the pass there. These natural phenomena only become 
natural disasters when they affect human populations. If a tornado touches down in a field and doesn't hit anything, that's not a natural disaster. If a hurricane is spinning around in the Gulf of Mexico, it's not a natural disaster until it affects humans. Hmm. And that's what I love to go and document, natural phenomena. They only become disasters because of our um, involvement in these things, right? So it's us, humans, that decide whether something is a disaster or not. And Hmm. let me tell you, my being there to document it will not affect whether or not the disaster happens, right? My, I can't stop these things. No one can. No, but well, if anything, you're you're helping because again, g- getting people to appreciate the severity of it. Exactly, and that's pretty much all I can do. I, I'm part of the CanWarn and, and uh, SkyWarn programs, which uh, helps to get warnings to people when there's tornadoes on the ground, things like that. So there are some direct ways that I help out, and there are there have been many instances where I've had to stop and, and give first aid and help people that have been affected by disasters, because sometimes I'm there before the... Yeah, the authorities are, right? Because I, I end up turning into a first responder because I'm right there when the tornado hits. Right. So we have a policy that if that happens, we stop the chase and we help. So wow. we so, do what we can. So I assume when evacuation notices go out, and we, ha- what's your opinion on the people who say they want to stay? Well, they, they take their life into their own hands. Uh, you can't really point a gun at someone and tell them that they have to leave, although I've heard stories. But if you choose to stay, then you better be prepared because you have to be completely self-sufficient. You have to know what you're in for and realize that you might not survive. There have been many instances where there's been an evacuation notice for a hurricane and there are literally two million people driving north and there here I am in my Honda driving south. And everyone's going the other direction. But inevitably, I run into people in these evacuation zones that chose to stay behind, and not all of them survive. There's been lots of instances of that. This has been really entertaining. I, I am completely honest. I knew nothing about this going in and have really enjoyed hearing you talk about it. <laughs> well, it's it's different, isn't it? It's, it it's is. not a typical uh, type of uh, a mountain climber or, uh, or, or canoeist or things like that, right? Right. Uh, to, to close... Since you've seen so many different parts of the world and your your career revolves around weather and extreme events, what is your what do you have any feelings about climate change? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I spent uh, the better part of all of last year traveling to places like Tuvalu, Bangladesh, Siberia, Laos, all of these different countries that are being affected now by climate change. In uh, in Tuvalu, we talked to government officials and they're worried about the future of their country in general, that the, their islands may become completely uninhabitable as sea level rises and that salt water pollutes their fresh water source. Uh, the people of Bangladesh that I spoke to pointed to places out in the sea where their farm used to be, that the land no longer exists because it's completely eroded away. And I also spoke with scientists in Siberia who study the melting permafrost. And as the environment gets warmer, more permafrost is going to melt, which will release more methane. Methane is about 20 to 25 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And there's lots of it stored up in the permafrost. So we could see this runaway 
uh, uh, sort of feedback loop happen. So, geez, I, I'm worried that I'm going to be very busy over the next 10, 20 years. And uh, yeah, it's good for me as a storm chaser, but as a, as a resident of planet Earth, it worries me like you wouldn't believe. Should any of our listeners want to try out storm chasing themselves? Uh, should they should they head over to one of these touring companies? What's the next step? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cloud9tours.com is uh, is the company that I work with uh, frequently. Okay. Uh, and uh, if you want to go on a two week vacation in May to come and see what it's like to live the the life of a storm chaser, we take you along and you learn what it's like. The good days are great. The days when we have blue sky, well. We'll do things like go see a movie or visit the world's largest ball of twine. There's not a lot to do uh-huh. in Kansas on a, on a bright, sunny sky day when you're a storm chaser. But uh, we have a good time all the time, and we have a really good track record. So, but, you, but you can't guarantee a good storm. That's well, impossible. It's, like, it's kind of like whale watching. I was just going to say like right? whale watching, yeah. You can't guarantee you're going to see the whales, but because we go for two weeks at a time, I can guarantee you you're going to see supercell storms. You're going to see amazing weather, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. I cannot guarantee that you're going to see a tornado. <laughs> Very good. That's up to Mother Nature. That's up to her to decide. George's website is stormchaser.ca. We'll also have the link to Cloud9 Tours on there. Also, uh, incredible pictures. The picture of the wave about to hit George in his car. Uh, and then I'm going to find that video of storm chasers hit by farm equipment on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us today, George. Absolutely my pleasure. Cheers. That's Canadian explorer and storm chaser George Karunas, mtnmeister.com for highlights, pictures, and videos. Thanks to our sponsor for today's episode. It's Steo. For the holidays, get apparel that's built for epic mountain blizzards or sitting by the fire. 20% off with the code MEISTER at steo.com. That's S-T-I-O.com, MEISTER at checkout. Also, don't forget that the first two people who sign up for a Summit for Someone climb through Mountain Meister will get a Big Agnes sleeping bag, a Big Agnes sleeping pad, and a $100 donation from yours truly. I'm also gauging interest in a Mountain Meister climb where you, me, and other listeners of this podcast go on a climb together. We'll have a Mountain Meister as our guide. Send me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com if you're interested. As usual, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank.